Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look behind the curtain of Northern politics, where we try and make sense of what the big stories of the day mean for our region. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows politics across the North, and I write it all up for my daily newsletter, The Northern Agenda, which drops in your inbox every weekday lunchtime. One of the topics I've been covering this week in the newsletter is the emergence of a new grouping in the Conservative Party, said to represent the voice of those red wall voters who switched to the Tories from Labour across the North and Midlands in 2019. But what do they want the Prime Minister to do? And more importantly, will he listen? I've been asking one of the members of this new Conservatives group, Chris Green, the MP for Bolton West, why he thinks stopping foreign workers coming in on social care visas could help solve the crisis in our care homes. But what else has been big in the news this week? All week long, our regional titles in the North have been reflecting on the 75th anniversary of the NHS, which listeners may be aware, came into being on July the 5th, 1948, when Nye Bevan ceremonially received the keys to what is now Trafford General Hospital in Greater Manchester. But the anniversary has prompted a lot of soul-searching about what is now one of the country's most cherished institutions. In an op-ed this week linked to a powerful front-page splash, here is a couple of lines from the Manchester Evening News. This enormous human experiment in a country's compassionate treatment of its citizens is ailing. There is little to be gained by pretending it isn't happening. Battered by a pandemic and years of underfunding, facing the generational challenge of an ageing population, it sometimes feels as though the NHS has seen much better days. We must ask, what do we lose if we lose the NHS? And if we allow it to become a rickety shadow of its former self or hollowed out for profit? Elsewhere, with the privatised water industry facing fierce criticism, I've been reporting on the water treatment works in Cumbria, which last year deposited more sewage into our water than any other in England. It's called Plumland, just outside the town of Aspatria, and in total, in 2022, it discharged sewage into the water for 6,896 hours, the equivalent of 287 days in one year. It really doesn't bear thinking about But if you want a bit of good news, particularly for people of a certain age like myself, Biker Grove is coming back to our screens. The Newcastle teen drama that helped make Anton Deck, or should I say PJ and Duncan, household names, is returning after 18 years with the presenters as executive producers and will be filmed across the North East in a boost for the region's ambitions to become a TV and film production hotspot. The main thing I want to know is, 
Will it have any scenes as memorable as the famous paintball episode? Google it if you've not heard of it, which I'm reliably informed still gets referred to by anyone on a stag do or birthday party on Tyneside to this day. But anyway, enough about that. Let's now hear from this week's guest. Now, there's nothing that excites politics watchers at Westminster like the arrival of a new group or faction, particularly in the ruling party of the day. You might remember the influence held by the Eurosceptic European Research Group on our Brexit votes, and closer to home, the Northern Research Group, made up of backbench Conservatives from the north of England, lobbying for a greater focus on levelling up by government. The latest group emerged this week in the form of the New Conservatives, mostly made up of recently elected Tory MPs, including quite a few in the north of England, and they're calling for what they describe as a new era in which Westminster respects the views, values and interests of the British people. Front and centre of their lobbying in the last few days has been the huge issue of immigration, and they point out that last year net migration stood at more than 600,000, a long way from the government's pledge to get the numbers below the 2019 level of 226,000. And to do this, they are suggesting a temporary that the temporary visa scheme for care workers should be closed and that the number of refugees resettling in the UK should be capped at 20,000. So our guest today on the podcast is actually not such a new Conservative. Chris Green was elected in Bolton West in 2015, but he's a member of this group. So I'm really interested in hearing how these policies might uh, might play out and how they might work in northern towns like his. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Rob, great to be here. Thank you, thank you for coming on. So for people who don't fully understand what the new Conservatives are about, perhaps they've not been listening to the news so much this week, just explain the purpose uh, of the group and also sort of what would count as success for you. Uh, so the new Conservatives group is largely, not entirely, but largely uh, those new Conservative MPs who won their seats in 2019, a little bit of the 2017 uh, group, but uh, largely, it's, it's that kind of red wall outlook. So those places that haven't had conservative representation for a very long time, if ever. So in, in a sense, uh, you've got new MPs representing parts of the country and to a certain extent, views and values, because every constituency is different. Uh, those have been brought into the Conservative Party. So we want to have a voice and those other groups, the NRG and the ERG, I'm part of that as well. So having this group is immensely important. Uh, and it's a, fundamentally, it is about uh, members of parliament, whichever constituency you represent, you want to make sure your constituents' voices, your constituents' concerns are heard by the prime minister, by parliament, by the government, and make sure that the policies and the agendas pursued are in line with the constituency as much as possible. Of course, all of this thing is about teamwork, uh, working together to make sure uh, your voices are amplified as part of a group. So immigration, uh, certainly when I was re-elected in uh, 2017, uh, when I was holding, I held a, a whole series of uh, public meetings uh, before the general election. And it was one of the most important topics that was coming up. And I, I think since I've been elected, uh, immigration, the levels of immigration has been really significant because it's a, there's a number of factors, but the pressure on services is a key part of that. So... I was just looking at the, the most recent census in Bolton, uh, 81% of Bolton residents reported their country of birth as England. So sort of 18% not born in 
this country that's a slightly higher proportion than the country as a whole. And you mentioned, you know, the importance of migration and immigration issues to your constituents. And given that your group is about making sure that the government goes along with the wishes of, uh, you know, the people who voted in 2019 and the country in general, does that imply that the government policy at the moment is not in line with what constituents in your patch are are thinking on, on this issue? Well, I think um, that 2019 manifesto commitment to reduce immigration below that 226,000 uh, per year, I think many of my constituents would think that's not terribly ambitious. Um, more the tens of thousands that George Osmond, David Cameron were talking about is more the territory that they'd uh, be looking at. But going back again to 2019, looking forward, who would have imagined uh, whether it's uh, Ukraine, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's a situation in Hong Kong, that things would have turned out quite as it has. So I think many people would understand and appreciate there are particular, uh, almost unique circumstances at the moment. And it's quite easy for other people. And let's say, for example, uh, people running businesses. Uh, those voices, to a certain extent, are saying, look, we need this migration. So there are significant voices on the one side saying we need this uh, migration into the UK because it serves the interests of their businesses. On the other hand, well, they don't have to be concerned about uh, GP waiting lists or, or, or uh, school places. They don't have to be concerned about that because they look after their business. But it's quite reasonable for constituency MPs uh, to be concerned about those things and have the voice on the other side, to have a somewhat more stable situation. So more than anything else, it's to recognize that we're in a very difficult position to what we had expected to be in when we were in 2019 to say, actually, we need to get back to where we plan to be. And we need to have voices say that because there are voices on one side and you do need the voices on the other side as well. Now, the policy has perhaps got uh, perhaps more of the attention this week, which was outlined uh, by Miriam Cates, uh, Penniston and Stocksbridge MP on the, on the radio earlier this week, is that the temporary visa scheme for care workers should be closed and that more efforts should be made to encourage local people to fill these care jobs. Obviously, there is a, a crisis in, in, in social care. I don't think that's controversial to, to say. And, it, you know, there, there is a shortage of skilled skilled workers. But so, I mean, in, in your constituency, how, how would it play out if, if care homes and uh, you know, other organisations couldn't uh, rely on uh, people coming in from abroad to fill those vacancies. Just take me through how you would arrive at this situation where local people would would be would be taking taking these jobs. I think for some people it, it feels like a bit of a a bit of a stretch for that to for that to happen. Well, the, the maths, uh, the, the simple maths would be: I think there's about hundred thousand vacancies at the moment. Therefore, we need people uh, coming to fill it. If British people won't do it, we need other people to come in uh, from overseas. I can see the logic of that argument, but I don't agree with it. Because if the logic of that argument were right, when 600,000 people came in last year, uh, since uh, 2019, it's 200,000 or so a year at that point, and it's risen to that 600,000 in between times. Before that, we had very significant levels of inward migration, well above the tens of thousands that George Osmond David Cameron was talking about. And you think at one point, when we're looking at business, whether it's car homes, whether it's the uh, fruit pickers and farms, whatever it might be in uh, British society or British business, where we say 
we need more people coming in. At what point do you say enough have come in to fill these vacancies? And I would have thought with the many hundreds of thousands in recent years that have come in in terms of net migration, we would, we should have been able to fill those spaces. We haven't. And it looks to me that if you keep trying the same solution of having uh, a very open approach, remember the visa system, I think we're supposed to recruit about 6,000 people into the care sector. We recruited about 80,000 plus into the care sector. And it still hasn't solved the problem. So we therefore have to look at different solutions. And one of the things that Miriam Cates quite rightly points out is that when we had, uh, and everyone will remember this, uh, a bit of a crisis over lorry drivers, the argument was, let's open the doors to uh, migration from uh, people all over Europe and, and beyond to be lorry drivers in the UK. Well, we didn't need to do that. What we did is we sorted out the, the training and the examination system. We sorted out those side of things to provide those lorry drivers. So actually, there's a very different solution that we can have. And one of the parts of this, and I think, I think pay, uh, carers should have a pay rise. And I think one of the parts of this that you look at the lorry drivers, they've actually increased uh, the pay to supply that demand. And that's what we uh, need to look to. So we've been trying this uh, approach consistently and, it, and, it, and it's just failed. So... Is it the case that you can't be sure that it would definitely work to do things the way that you're proposing, but that it can't be any worse than the current system? Is that kind of the the the, 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 the approach that you're taking? Well, we, we can definitely say at the moment, um, the uh, the approach of having pretty open doors in terms of migration and having a special visa policy is failing. I, I think objectively, uh, we can say it's uh, failing. I also think that this approach is also suppressing the wages of people often on minimum or very low wages. Why should we have a system in the UK, and I'm speaking speak this as a, a, a conservative, why should we have a system in the UK that suppresses wages for those already on the lowest wages? I think that's just wrong. Um, and so how do we work with people, and, and it will cost money, how do we work with uh, people in the sector uh, to raise skills, uh, uh, raise uh, more recruits uh, from people in Britain. There are about 5 million people in out-of-work benefits of one uh, form or another. Uh, there are also people with those skills and those experiences who went to work in other areas. Uh, one of the concerns I had was during the COVID period, having compulsory vaccination. I think there are ethical problems with that. Force people out of the system. They got better paid jobs elsewhere. Now, we need to have... Um, the ability for those people to return into the system. And that does mean terms, conditions, but also pay. The, the one thing I would say about the uh, what Miriam Cates was saying about um, you know, HGV drivers, she cited yesterday as her example. I, I've got the, the government website in front of me, which talks about how they tried to solve the HGV driver shortage. And there were sort of incentives that they offered to uh, encourage people to become HGV drivers, but they also added... 4,700 HGV drivers to the existing visa scheme to help food industries. And they allowed up to 300 extra fuel drivers to come to the UK. So it seems like it was a mixture. It wasn't purely supply side reforms. It was also increasing the number who came in at the same time, which uh, I mean, but, but that, that's, that's a relatively a small, uh, a relatively small proportion. And you look at the visa system for carers, I think it was about 6,000 or so uh, it was planned for. 
and about 80,000 or so have come in. So when we've got a, a deficit of about 100,000, you would have thought it would have pretty much been filled and it hasn't been. So the government has obviously been asked about what your what the group is saying. And I think uh, they have said, uh, number 10 Downing Street spokesman has said, there are no plans currently to remove care workers from the shortage occupation list to cut immigration. Uh, and they've also said that, uh, you know, that your, your proposals on refugees is not necessarily something that they're considering at this current time. I mean, given that that is the case, are you, is your group not just causing Rishi Sunak another, another headache? You're just another sort of opposition voice uh, lobbying for him to do something that he's not going to do, which is not necessarily what he needs go with, you know, with polls being, the polls not looking, not looking too great. Uh, no, I wouldn't characterise it like that at all. When uh, Rishi Sunak, before he was Prime Minister, before he was Chancellor, he was on the back benches. And one of the things he campaigned for when he was on the back benches is free ports. And it's perfectly reasonable for backbench MPs, as he did himself, to campaign for important issues. This is, what we're talking about, is actually in line with the Conservative Party manifesto in 2019. We've had pretty significant uh, uh, global events since 2019. And it's perfectly reasonable when uh, he's still a relatively new prime minister uh, that there is this uh, debate. And his question is, do we keep the relatively open system we have at the moment or do we uh, look to moving it to actually what our manifesto uh, promise, our manifesto commitment was? Now, obviously, uh, the government of the day, the official line is from the government of the day always is, Whatever the current government policy, it's always the right policy, it's always the perfect policy until it changes. And one of the things we're doing is giving that space and actually articulating a concern right across the country, because this is not a handful of conservative MPs representing a tiny minority position. This is quite a popular position across the country. And Labour, I'd be quite interested to hear what they would have to say on this, because they're quite evasive on this kind of topic. Uh, uh, broadly speaking, they have never committed to uh, a cap on numbers or anything else. So I do think it's uh, an important, when we're looking forward to the general election, an important issue that many voters will be considering in terms of how they vote. So getting the Conservative Party moving in the right direction, it can only really happen if people are making the case. If no one makes the case, it ain't going to happen. And how much of what you're doing is driven by the concern that, as it stands, the policies of Rishi Sunak's government, you know, his five goals that he announced earlier this year are not going to win over voters in northern seats like yours in sufficient numbers to, for, you know, for MPs like yourself to get back in. And you'd like to see a policy offer that's closer to what Boris Johnson offered in 2019. It's, it's a, uh, you know, an element of self-preservation about it, I guess. Um I'm, 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 not, I'm not actually looking at it through that prism. I, I, I can see... Um, why it would be taken in that way. And it's a perfectly reasonable uh, uh, point to make, but fundamentally, um, our manifesto was reflecting what we believe the country's interests to be, and any political party delivering on those interests will get re-elected. So uh, pretty much the, the same thing in the sense of self-interest and national interest, I would argue. People may dispute that, of course. Um, but we... We need to deliver on what we're saying, uh, talking about in 2019. We've got to respect the fact that uh, circumstances have changed. And we also have to look, 
it's different parts of the country. Uh, perhaps London and the southeast, you hear more about the housing crisis, but there's certainly very significant housing uh, concerns right across the north of England as well. Now, some people dislike the idea that you might say immigration uh, puts pressure on housing, but can anyone really say that 600,000 additional people in the UK in one year, plus 200,000 plus for the preceding years, uh, that that's not going to put uh, pressure on housing, on schools, on uh, medical facilities, on council services? Of course it is. And it's about getting that right balance. And it's about also uh, one of the aspects, and I think is quite uh, reasonable to argue for, is that um, minimum income as well. Uh, because making a net contribution after you've uh, schools and medical things and ev everything else, typically the time people make a net contribution in terms of taxes is when they earn about uh, £38,000. And so I think if people understand and appreciate that, and we say that people coming in are a, a, an asset to the country, they're net contributors, we'd say, well, you need a good, well-paying job. And I think this is what we'd expect if people were being, uh, going to Australia, to Japan, to the United States of America. Those countries would expect people to make a good contribution. And why should we expect the same in the United Kingdom? Now, I'm interested in how effective backbench groups like, like yours are in influencing the government. As you said, you're a member of the uh, Northern Research Group who've made various demands like uh, Voxbridge, a Northern educational, uh, vocational education equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge, a dedicated minister for the North, a levelling up formula to equalise and level up government spending. Now, as far as I'm aware, none of those things are currently government policy and possibly not likely to become so in the near Future. I mean, do, do you think Rishi Sunak is listening to his northern MPs when they I ask do. for things and, like this? Um, well, one of the challenges is um, when we are uh, when we want to level up. I, I still prefer the Northern Powerhouse as an idea. That, that the vision behind that I think is a bit more clear and a bit more northern focused for obvious reasons. Um, I think he is listening. I do think he gets it. And one of the uh, challenges is we're in pretty difficult economic times. The uh, the you know, the budget deficit is really substantial. And so when we're calling out and demanding more money for the north of England, well, if we had a, a budget surplus, it'd be somewhat easier to do. So we have to continually uh, make these arguments. And I do think that uh, groups can have an impact. And on, on a very distinct area, I used to be on the uh, Department of Work and Pensions uh, Select Committee. And it was, quite, uh, it was really interesting the work we did. Frank Field was chairman at the time. And we're able, cross, on a cross-party basis, uh, to challenge Philip Hammond as the then Chancellor in terms of universal credit, about the six-week delay, and, and a few other points on uh, universal credit as it was. And we were able to get the Chancellor in the budget to make changes. And I think you can have that influence. And sometimes having a good, strong uh, voice, whether it's cross-party or whether it's a conservative voice, it act, does actually have an impact. And it gives that space, it creates that argument, it creates that narrative that the, the government of the day can fill. Now, for a final question, Chris, I'll take you back to a, more, a local, pressing local issue, perhaps not as important as our immigration system, but I think for a lot of people, something they feel quite passionately uh, about. Um, in the last few days, Bolton Council has been debating whether the borough should leave Greater Manchester. There's been a petition signed by more than 3,000 people supporting the move for Bolton to return to the county of Lancashire, which it was removed from as part of a local government reorganisation 
1974. Obviously, such a change would result in quite a few administrative sort of governance changes for for Bolton. I'm, I'm interested in your view as a, a Bolton MP who presumably speaks to people in the town a lot. Is this something that a lot of people in Bolton feel would be a good thing? They feel more like they're part of Lancashire than they feel like they're part of Greater Manchester? Uh, there's a, a, a spectrum, a, a huge spectrum of opinions on this. Uh, I'm from Liverpool, a great Lancashire town. Uh, Manchester's a great uh, well, city, I should say. Salford, Manchester, they're great uh, Lancashire cities as well. We are in Lancashire. The 1974 settlement never erased the character, the nature, the geography of our historic counties. Those historic counties are still our actual counties. And I often refer to Greater Manchester as the Greater Manchester Administrative District because it's all about admin. Uh, it's paper clips and pens and bios are important. That's where I see the identity of Greater Manchester at that level. Lancashire is so much more important. So um, in terms of uh, working with other boroughs in Greater Manchester, it, I'm comfortable with the administrative outlook in Greater Manchester. You know what? I, I never wanted the mayoral position. I'll, um, so if we were to ditch that, I'd be pretty happy. I, I'd be all right about moving out of Greater Manchester as a formal organization. I think there'll be some benefits. We could off, act independently on a, a, a number of issues. But where we need to collaborate uh, with uh, Wigan Borough or Berry or Salford, uh, we could collaborate. So I'm not going to push it, but I certainly um, am sympathetic. I wish George Osborne had have included uh, his Tatton constituency in the Selneck area, uh, the southeast Lancashire, northeast Cheshire administrative area. Far broader is that travel to work area uh, that should be uh, more of the focus to sort out those transport and other concerns to make sure people get to work more easily. I don't know why George Osborne didn't want to have the mayor of uh, Greater Manchester uh, or the, gov uh, the mayor of Selneck uh, governing his affairs, but he imposed something on us which he wouldn't have imposed upon himself. But more important than anything else is Lancashire as a county fundamentally was never changed all those years ago. Well, there speaks a proud Lancastrian. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chris Green. Thanks for listening. This week's episode of the Northern Agenda podcast has been presented by me, Rob Parsons, and produced by Matt Millard. It'd be great if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you want to sign up to the Northern Agenda newsletter, where you get news and analysis from across Northern politics, you can do that at www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. See you next week.